Hello friends, and welcome back to Bitching About Medieval Literature. We've read The Decameron, we've read The Mabinogion, we've read individual stories from a whole lot of different collections, and today we're reading Beowulf. Now, Obviously, we're not reading the entirety of Beowulf. I can tell you on very good authority that that could take as much as eight hours because one time I took part in a project to actually literally read the entire thing, in translation, of course. What we're going to do is I'm going to read a mix of excerpts with brief summaries of what happens in between each excerpt. Why Beowulf? Throughout this project, I've been focused much more on prose literature, and that's partly because translating prose literature well is so much easier. Beowulf is a huge piece. It's a huge challenge. It's been translated over 600 different times, not just because it's a fun project, but also because translation's really fucking hard. The work that scholars do to look across different manuscripts and collate them and compare them and put together a complete text is substantial. And that's the work that happens before translation starts. The thing is, there's no, there's no such thing as a perfect translation because Language exists within the context of culture. You can see this in the use of the English language, the modern English language, if we go back 200 years and look at Jane Austen. We hear that Lady Catherine de Bourgh in Pride and Prejudice is so very condescending, she's so patronising, and this is a sign, these are positive attributes. And it's like, what? That's not how we use those words. They're the same words. It's the same language. The culture changes. Language use changes. How can you translate the words for clothes that don't exist anymore into something that's meaningful? How can you translate a combat scene that uses idioms and metaphors that we've never encountered, let alone trying to make it feel like it might have felt to the people who were listening to it and reading it back in the day. How do you try and convey the urgency of the language or the sense of intertextuality that might be present in the language? How do you try and convey that the text you're reading is very old or that the text you're reading is new and vital and exciting? How do you do that? The answer is you can't do all of those things. Different translations focus on different purposes. Some of them are much more concerned with being close to literal and word for word. And I say close to quite deliberately. You can't really achieve a functional translation if you're going word for word. Some translations focus on style or intent or mood or being comprehensible. None of these translations are more correct than any other for that reason. They have to be read with sensitivity to that. And that's something that I haven't really gone into over the last 
year and four months or so, as we've been reading these stories, I've let the translations exist as if they were the original text. They're not the original text. They're an incredible piece of creativity and scholarship combined. And there is no better text to explore the challenges of translation than Beowulf. As I mentioned, it's been translated over 600 times. The very first word of Beowulf is a translation challenge. What? It begins. What the fuck does that mean? The first guy to translate all of Beowulf into modern English, J.M. Kemble, decided to translate it as low. J.R.R. Tolkien, when he did his translation in the 1920s, made the same call. But the 1966 Norton Anthology of English Literature has a translation of Beowulf by a guy called Donaldson, who began it, yes. And the Penguin edition by Alexander starts with, attend. For an excellent blend of meaning and style that really feels like old English poetry, I love the Seamus Haney edition, and that starts with, so. But my absolute favourite Beowulf the one I'm reading you today, was published by Maria Devana Headley just last year, 2020, and it begins, Bro, tell me we still know how to speak of kings. In the old days, everyone knew what men were, brave, bold, glory-bound. Only stories now, but I'll sound the Spearedane song, Hoarded for Hungry Times. I'll talk more later about why I love this translation so much. For now, just enjoy it. The poem starts by telling the story of the kings of the Danes, until we get to Hrothgar, a mighty warrior and king, so mighty, so successful, and so wealthy from that success, that he built a hall that was a wonder of the world, called Heorot. Men flocked to it, feasted there, and their feasting woke a monster. Grendel was the name of this woe-walker, unlucky, fucked by fate. He'd been living rough for years, ruling the wild, the mere, the fen, and the fastness, his kingdom. His creation was cursed under the line of Cain, the kin-killer. The lord, long ago, had taken Abel's side. Though none of that was Grendel's doing, he'd descended from bloodstains. From Cain had come a cruel kind, seen by some as shadow-stalked. Monsters, elves, giants who'd ground against God, and for that, been banished. Under a new moon, Grendel set out to see what horde haunted this hall. He found the ring Danes drunk, dows downed, making beds of benches. They were mead-medicated, untroubled by pain, their sleep untainted by sorrow. Grendel hurt, and so he hunted. This stranger taught the Danes about time. He struck, seized thirty dreaming men, and hired himself home, bludgeoning his burden as he bounded, for the Danes had slept sweetly in a world that had woken him, benefited from bounty even as they'd broken him. Grendel attacks the hall every night for twelve years, and no one can fight him. Eventually, news went global. 
In Geatland, Higalak's right-hand man heard about Grendel. Bro, he was a warrior like no other. Massive, mighty, born of noble blood. He called for a ship to be readied for his band, and boasted he'd try his teeth on this tale. Sailin is a saviour over the Swan Road. Seek that king and lend a hand as defender. His elders understood his quest, and though he was dear to them, they knew better than to spear him with speeches. They augured the omens, ooh, and ushered him onward. Beowulf collected fourteen warriors and they sailed for Denmark, where they're met by a watchman who says, How dare you come to Denmark costumed for war? Chainmail and swords? There's a dress code. You're denied. I am the Dane's doorman. This is my lord's door. Who are you that dare steer your ship for our shore? I'm the watcher of these waters, have been for years, and it's my duty to scan the sea for shield-bearing dangers to Danes. I have never seen any force come so confidently over swells, certain of welcome, no welcome won. Did you send word? No. Were you invited? No. You're not on the guest list. And also, who's the giant? What weapons does he hold? Oh, hell no. He's no small-time hall soldier, but noble. Look at his armour. I'm done here. Spies, state your secrets or be denounced. Who are you? What's your business? Where'd you come from? I'll ask one more time. You're not coming past this cliff. Answer now or bounce. You men. Who? Where? Why? They explain themselves and go to Herot, where Hrothgar recognises Beowulf's name and welcomes him in. And Beowulf introduces himself. My respects to Hrothgar. I'm a kinsman of Higelac, and over the years, no boasts. I've been known for my promise and prowess. I heard tell of Grendel from sailors. Seriously, the whole world knows the stories, swapped and sworn, of Herot Hall's early curfew, how every night you surrender to silence when the sun sprints out of heaven, leaving the celestial dome dark. Every elder knew I was the man for you, and blessed my quest, King Hrothgar, because where I'm from, I'm the strongest and the boldest and the bravest and the best. Yes, I mean, I may have bathed in the blood of beasts, netted five foul ogres at once, smashed my way into a troll den and come out swinging, gone skinny dipping in a sleeping sea and made to see me of some sea monsters. Anyone who fucks with the geats, bro, they have to fuck with me. Beowulf announces his intention to fight Grendel hand to hand. Hrothgar thinks this is an easy way to get killed, but he welcomes Beowulf's help and throws a feast. And at that feast... Near Hrothgar's feet squatted Unferth, Ekglaf's son, unconvinced, whispering churlish words. Beowulf's bravado bristled him, and envy ate him alive. He had historically been glorious, and the notion that another, more notorious under heaven, might enjoy greater greatness made him gnash. Bro, do you happen to be the Beowulf who challenged Brecker in the open ocean? Insisting you should swim in shark seas for no reason but to prove your petty prowess? Boasting that no boat should guard your lives but that you should risk them recklessly? I heard no one could convince you two of clarity, that you dove overboard surfing on stupidity, swearing you knew the currents better than any other, and that you, swole as a troll fed on travellers, were superior to any swell. You lolled for seven nights in wintry waters, and in the end... He outswam your fool self, skipped to shore unscathed, though uncertain, and rolled onto the sand safely in the land of the Hjotharims. From there he went to his home country, 
where the Brandings adored him, a calm and pleasant place, and returned to his hall, his host. His boyish boast was proven. Yes, he'd bested Beowulf. No matter your other battles, the tales you told, the lines you sold, buddy, at least you lived. This time? Bro, know it. No one's ever lasted a knight clasped in Grendel's arms. Beowulf, Ecthiel's son, wasn't phased. Well, actually, buddy, sit down. You're drunk. Unferth, you've run your mouth about Brecker, me, and our sea swagger, but let me drop some truth into your tangent. I've been better on the water, deeper in the drink, and stronger in the swim than any man alive. Brecker and I were boys together. Our desires were only dares, one upon the other, brother to brother. Maybe you know this story? But hold up, I forgot. You've got no brothers left. And so Beowulf tells the story of how, on that swim, he killed nine sea monsters in one night. And he challenges Unferth. I've racked my brains, bro, but Unferth, I can't unpack any similar stories of heroics from you. Let me say it straight. You don't rate, and neither did Brecker when it came to battle. For golf? You're cattle, and I'm a wolf. I'm not even mentioning your sins, your kin-killing, your brother-beating. I'm not the man to damn you. No shit, though, Unferth, if you were the bitter, brawling brave you claim to be, your king wouldn't have suffered a single night of Grendel's rampage. No bitten bones, no hall horror, no chaos in his kingdom. Grendel was aware he had nothing to fear here. Your sword's soft, son. The feast continues, and Hrothgar and his queen, Wilsiaw, give out lots of gifts, and then night falls. The Danes leave the hall for safety, while Beowulf and his men wait for Grendel. Hidden by fog, Grendel roved the moors, God-cursed, grudge-worsening. He knew who he hunted. Wine-drunk, mead-met men, and he pined for his prey. Under storm clouds, he stalked them, in his usual anguish, feeling a forbidden hearth, that gilded hall atop the hill, gleaming still through years of bloodshed. This was not the first time he'd hunted in Hrothgar's hall, but never before nor later had he had such hard luck. No unworthy had historically lain in wait. The warrior worked his way toward the war, his head and heart hurting, and arrived at the iron-crossed door. Its hinges howled a welcome, and his rage ratcheted up. He flung the hatch wide and leapt into the mead room, over decorated floors, into the hold, fury frothing. His heart crowed as he counted them, man by man, nested together, roosting like roasting chickens. He'd be the sort of fox that stalks the night, eat his fill, no coo remaining, no bill, only feathers loose on the floor. Before sunrise, he planned to prize souls from skeletons. His weird, though, would no longer be writ in others' blood, red footprints to the door and out, the moors, the mere. No. Tonight was the night Grendel's goose would be cooked, his funeral banquet bruised and blue. Grendel attacks one of Beowulf's men and kills him, then goes for Beowulf. He gripped that sleeper, though, and found himself conscripted, his own hand grabbed by a commanding geat. The grasp began the tear that would take Grendel out, rendering him a revenant in the hall he'd always reveled in. He knew it now, he who'd spent seasons haunting this hall, preying on poets, bringing pain to the privileged, infuriating the Almighty. His body was breached, its bones were breaking. Higelac's kinsmen had him, hand-welded, 
each of them living cancelled out the other, as Cain had Abel, brother unbrothered. Grendel's shoulders split, tendons twisting, arteries unscrolled, his limb worried from him, bested by fatal fists. Beowulf, the winner, Grendel, dismissed. He ran then for his grave, still living. He rushed to the water, wound weeping, glare his last longing. His hourglass was emptying now, his days done, and he knew it. Each heartbeat wrote its number in red, and the ring Danes were delivered of their wretch with a ring. This enemy was dead. Bro, I've heard when dawn woke, soldiers stampeded to the ring hall, chieftains coming to contemplate the cooling corpse portion, warriors and wild men from all over the realm, wide-eyed with wonder, overwhelmed at the sight of Grendel's tracks in the dirt. No sorrow there for those who'd suffered him, but satisfaction at the marks of misery where he'd conveyed himself from hall door to mere shore, bleeding out. He'd left a river of gore, and the warriors had no regrets, imagining him dropping a doomed carcass into those wicked waters, which even now were blood-clotted scarlet drifts. Oh, the gift of this! That devil diver, deep in the dark, dimmer and dimmer yet, dying, dying, dead. Here was the truth. Everyone knew it. Grendel was headed down, hell-bent. Everyone celebrates. There's a huge feast. Sagas are sung. Gifts are given. Hrothgar basically adopts Beowulf. Queen Wilthiau asks Beowulf to stand as a sort of uncle to her sons. And everyone goes to sleep, feeling safe. But there was another chapter. An avenger lay in wait, counting sordid seconds until the latest hour, her heart full of hatred. Grendel's mother, warrior woman, outlaw, meditated on misery. She lived ill-fated, sinking beneath cold currents to her kingdom undercountry. Her line linked to extinction since Cain crossed swords with Abel and fled, murder-marked, to make his home in wastelands, solitary and silent. From Cain came more misery, a legacy of lost souls. Grendel was one of those, banished and blasted. He'd found a waker among the dreamers, a battle amid the beds, and wrestled the warrior who'd woken into war. Beowulf saw himself as God's gift, Grendel as a goner. He used his strength to slay the intruder, trusting in his father to protect him, as he always had. He bled the hellion, and Grendel fled piecemeal, no heaven for him, no honey, only rushing through a haunted hall to die in his own mausoleum. Now his mother was here, carried on a wave of wrath, crazed with sorrow, looking for someone to slay, someone to pay in pain for her heart's loss. She found the path and made her way to Heorot. Grendel's mother breaks into Heorot and takes Hrothgar's closest friend, and Grendel's arm. Everything is thrown into chaos, and Hrothgar blames Beowulf for this sort of blood-feud revenge situation, demanding that he deal with it, offering rewards if only he can fix this problem. Beowulf, son of Ecthiaul, was open for business. No worries, wise one, I've got this. When a friend needs to be avenged, it's better to fight than cry. Even when mourning, this is how it goes. We're all going to die, but most of us won't go out in glory. Here's what matters, though, for men. Not living, but living on in legend. I'm not afraid. 
Stand up, protector of this place, and let us go together, following Grendel's mother's tracks. I give you my fist. She won't get away from Beowulf. There's no asylum, no cleavage cracks in Mother Earth, no tree barrow, no ocean I can't find her in, wherever she hides. Live through today, Hrothgar. It's the end of your miseries. Be as brave as your scops say you are. They track Grendel's mother to the mere, the lake, where the water is blood-red, boiling, full of monsters. Meanwhile, Beowulf gave zero shits. He dressed himself in glittering gear, his mail shirt finely forged, links locked and loaded. He'd meet this murdering mother under Mir and amend her existence. Even if she tried to smother him, his bone cage would stay intact, no weakness here. His helmet, bright against the bleak backdrop, would save his skull from the watery substrate, from the black mud and curious currents. Hammered gold for a glamour god, made by one long gone, jewels and boar-shaped ornaments imbued by the smith with power to keep other men from dying. No battle teeth could test it, no sword slice that shine. Gold is good. Last but not least, Unferth, Hrothgar's left-hand man, unexpectedly stand for Beowulf and handed him his heirloom, fronting an ancient hilted sword, written with runes of ruin, iron blade emblazoned with poison shoots, each bud reddened with enemy blood. In war it never failed to score flesh, had never been wrested from the fist of him who held it. It was a sublime soldier's sword, meant to limb enemies, and this wasn't the first time it urged a hero to perform a feat. Unferth sent his sword to the more skilled swordsman. Note, the stone-bold son of Ecglaf had been blackout drunk when he'd said that stuff he'd said, the rant he'd decanted into Beowulf's ear. He wasn't man enough to dive into rotten depths seeking someone so savage. He'd forgotten it now. He sought not to risk his skin, so surrendered his chance at fame. Why sign up for Endless Night when another man is armoured, able, and ready to fight? So armed, Beowulf dives into the mirror and swims down for most of a day before he encounters Grendel's mother. She grabs him, and since she can't kill him with his armour on, drags him through a mess of sea monsters, down to her own hall. The warrior squinted in the shadows and made out the domed walls of the hall, damming back the damned waters, the mere made seer by engineering. He saw the glow of a fire, brilliant light flaming up and flaring, and then at last he saw her, the reclusive Night Queen, the mighty Mere wife. Fearless, he heaved his sword to take her life, swinging with all his strength so the edge rang against her skull, but it was to no avail. His war torch was dimmed, his blood boldness gone. She was impervious to his blade. The sword had failed him, though it had served many worthy soldiers, skinned many adversaries, slicing armour, hacking helmets into hash. This was the first time the heirloom hadn't overwhelmed an enemy. Higalak's heir was bent on blood, thinking of legacy, of legend. He hurled the sword, useless hoard guilt. Let it shatter in the silt. He'd fight like a man, and take her hand to hand, his fingertips blueprinting her skin. This is what real men must do. Come on, we all know the truth. If you want to win, you have to forget you're afraid to die. Things go pretty bad for Beowulf until he sees a huge glowing sword hanging on the wall and grabs it. It was enough. He cleaved her spine. 
Those bone rings given by God were bitten through, the house of her head raided as her hall had been. She bent as though praying, and was spent, sinking to the stones. The sword sweated red. The swordsman regretted nothing. Beowulf finds Grendel's corpse, cuts off his head, and the blade literally dissolves as he swims upwards, until he surfaces with the head in one hand and the hilt in the other. And then it's celebrations round two, and Beowulf eventually heads home to see his own king, Higelac. He's welcomed to the hall, and meat is served. Only then did Higelac begin to question his comrade, calmly, commandingly, to glean the story of the war geats and take the tale for his own hall history. Holy hell, Beowulf, how'd it go out there? You left with hardly a word and hide yourself over water to defend a hall not your home, Heyrot. And Hrothgar, did you help him? We know his woes, and to be honest, I thought them insoluble. I've been mourning you in advance, dreading news of your death. As you may recall, I begged you to let the Danes do their own damn dirty work. It's them who began a blood feud with Grendel, and them who should end it. Well, thank God you're home, whatever horror happened at Heyrot. Beowulf tells the story, and shows off all his gifts from Hrothgar, and distributes them generously. Thus did Beowulf bring his bravery to bear. He'd battled like a brawler, but could hold court with kings and queens too, never punching down, never mocking drunk comrades, never locking himself in combat with those whose strength couldn't stand. He kept his stones controlled, and when he rolled, he rolled only with equals. Mind, he hadn't had this status when he left, a boy who men looked on as low. The Geats thought him lazy, and even their lord had never given him span on the beer bench, believing he was all bluster, no badass, thinking his position came from privilege, not class. But now, everyone who thought Beowulf was just a wayward boy got taught. The poem does a time skip here. Eventually, Beowulf ends up king, and he rules for fifty years until he's old and grey. And then, somewhere in his kingdom, a thief steals a golden goblet from a dragon's hoard. The dragon wakes, furious, and makes her fury known across the land by basically burning everything. Soon Beowulf received a blistering missive. His own hall, his heart home, had combusted. He'd been ghost-throned by the sky-born gold-holder. To the good man, this region's ring-giver, this was distress unbearable. Punishment, perhaps, from the Lord. Unjust? He worried, weighed it. Had he broken old covenants? Unwarded his soul? Doubt dawned as he considered deeds long done, sins kept secret. He wasn't used to feeling insecure. Meanwhile, the fire drake raked coast to coast with claws, charred gilded Geatland without pause, crimson blazes and black billows, until the old war king woke to action, plotting vengeance on the stranger. The foremost warrior projected for his own protection a myth-worthy shield, made entirely of iron. He knew no forest gift could defend him. His safety lay in smithy. Linden couldn't withstand lightning. Though Beowulf didn't predict he'd die in this fight, he and the dragon both, he'd always known that fate could fuck a fighter up, no matter the hordes he'd held, no matter the luck he'd had. The ring collector was too proud to bring a warband, to march an army against the firmament flyer. His plan would be his pyre. He imagined the dragon a dimwit, clocking neither her courage nor her grit. Chapter 
Beowulf gathers 13 men, led by the thief who'd woken the dragon's rage, and they go to the dragon's home in a barrow. And there, Beowulf blasted his last boast. I laid my life down on the daily when I was your age. Now, grey guardian though I am, I'll show you how it's done. I'll kill this creature if it's the last thing I do. If it's no coward, it'll come out of its cave and face its challenger. He eyeballed each of his men, power-privileged warriors, for the last time. I'd go in without weapons, as I always have, if this weren't a dragon. I'd do it like a man, kill it bare-handed, like I killed Grendel so long ago. But mortal skin can't contend with a flame-spitting fiend, and so I go in sword-armed, taking shield and mail-shirt. I won't surrender when I see the beast, but fight it by the wall, and God will dictate which brawler wins. Get a good seat, boys, and look to the sky. Your job's to watch this flyer fall. Undecided. Don't defy me. I've no more shade to throw on this serpent raider. Let the winner win. Let the loser get bent. My men, stay here atop the barrow. Wait with your war weapons. Watch and see who wins, who can suffer more, who can be worse wounded, who can survive fire. This is my fight. I don't ask for intervention. None of you are strong enough to take this thing, to try to stake your manhood on doing a dragon. I'll be the one winning the gold, my bravery the broadest. And if not, boys, this'll be the battle that breaks your king. Beowulf stood tall, his iron shield upraised, armoured in his own fame, his helmet, his mail shirt, his faith firm only in fate, a grit god bearing brute weight beneath the rocky ledge. He shouted a challenge to the dragon, and she woke. Feet planted, the people's provider held firm behind his shield, even as the serpent swirled, twisting and unfurling, her scales flame-swathed, flinging herself hard at fate, a flexing firework aimed straight at the king. His shield shirked its duty, keeping him safe for only moments. The famous warrior was, for the first time, naked. Another first. Beowulf had never before been quarry. God snubbed, fate forsaken, his glorious premeditated victory unwritten. The gate lord raised a sooty fist and punched in panic at armoured scales. As his sword slid, twisting against stony bones, his fang useless against volcanic dangers. It dawned on the king that he was afraid. His weapons forged without sorcery, his defences all man-made. The horde guard rippled in rage, her mouth a fusillade of flames, so furious was she to feel even the dullest blade. Her war lanterns lit. Beowulf knew better than to expect victory. His sword, unmatched until this hour, splintered where it should have slain. His ageless iron had never been conquered, but now? Ecthiar's son found himself engaged in ebbing, loaded into a rattling cart and exiled to a darker country, though unwilling to go easy in the loss of long-held lodging. Everybody's got to learn sometime. Seeing that Beowulf was losing, his warriors fled except for one, called Wiglaf. Repulsed at their reluctance, Wiglaf sought to convince his companions. Bro, listen, remember in the mead hall, we swore to our lord we'd stand by him, swore to our ring-giver we were worth his investment? that we'd bleed in our battle gear given us for fighting, not strutting? He favoured us from among the flock, gave us gifts, called us more than just mill-run warriors. 
I know he insisted he climb this hill alone, the head of our country, the best of men, but it's time for us to defy him. Get in the zone. He's falling. Do we watch him drop? No. Do we wait for his heart to stop, for him to die? No. Beowulf needs backup, on attack. Let's save our saviour from those flames. I'd rather burn in a pyre alongside my ring-giver than run home, arms untested against any enemy. My God, hear me. It beggars belief that we wouldn't even seek to slay this serpent, that we wouldn't try to tear our prince from its teeth. Men, I know if you don't, he deserves better than Dragonfire, undefended by his own. We're sworn to go together. No? Well? Then I'm going in alone, though my sword's nothing next to its skin. I'll bring my king my shield, helmet, shirt, and sword. He sprinted through fire, appearing armoured alongside his lord, shouting, Beowulf, I'm beside you. You'll dare to risk it all and fight to the finish, as you did when you were young. You won't be bested while your heart beats. Your fame won't diminish. Your history's here. Be strong, my king. Your boy's with you in this fight. Be your country's shield, as I battle on your right. The two warriors shelter under Beowulf's iron shield, but Beowulf's sword shatters on the dragon's skin. The third round sounded. The fire breather rallied, rocketing from her corner and diving at that warrior, driving needle fangs into his throat, shaking him like a captured flag. Beowulf went limp, his body wound-worn, drenched in his own dark lifeblood. Here's what I know. Wiglaf, Weostan's son, saw his king collapsing, and showed his bloodline's bravery and geat-born grit. His fighting hand was singed as he dodged the dragon's head, but he drove lower, spurning safety to spit the serpent's stomach with his ogre-etched sword. With that blade in her belly, she couldn't belch flame. Her fires sputtered. Now Beowulf, with his last strength, drew a dagger from his hip, a lethal hunting thorn, and dipped it into the dragon's side, wounding her fatally. Blade met body, a bleak and bitter fight. Together, those two slew their foe, courage conquering flight, and that duo, kin by blood and bone, did it side by side. Every warrior should step up to serve his lord, throw down regardless of odds. This was the last battle for the king, though. His final victory, a grim one. Beowulf knew he was dying. He spoke to Wiglaf. If I'd ever had a son, I'd be giving him my armour now. But I never fathered one, never gave my blood to an heir, and so this death is final. I'm the last of me. I've been ruling here fearless for fifty winters. I was the man. No neighbour came to war. My name kept enemies at bay, and no one could scare me. I lived in peace and released my lease on battle, knowing I had nothing to prove. I wasn't ambitious, never threw shade, never took shit, never spat curses when I felt wronged, but sat on the throne and weighed my people's woes and wishes. I have to say I did okay. Now, as I lie dying, doomed by dragon, no one can claim I was a bad king. God can't call me a murderer, for I slew none of my kin. My boy, get a move on, and bring your lord's last request. I want to see what prize I won of this. Wiglaf goes into the dragon's barrow, and brings out treasure for Beowulf to see. By now, the man is bleeding out. To God, the king, eternal throne holder, I sing my thanks. 
that you've let me look on this before I die. This gold, this get, it's enough. My people lose me, but gain a hoard gift. Say that on the day of my dying, I went hard. I traded my life for this. It's a good bargain. My God, watch over my geats. I'm going. These people are your people now. Shout my last orders. Tell my army to build a barrow before my body blazes, one like the dragon had, high up on the coast. I want it visible, towering like a giant's tooth on Whale's Cape, so my people know I was king, and so seafarers say my name daily, nightly, call out Beowulf's Barrow, as they pass in their tall ships, bound here over wild and misty waters. And so Beowulf names Wiglaf his heir, and dies, with the dragon dead beside him. It isn't long before the warriors that had abandoned him return to see what happened, and Wiglaf scorns them. Anyone with half a brain's well aware that this king treated us like princes, giving us gifts, the gear that guards us even now. He opened his arms, offered all who stood in his mead hall armour, helmets, mail shirts, treasures. He treated us, his thanes, like sons, gave us the glories he'd won, but hey, I guess he had no judgement. He threw those gifts away. What a fucking waste in time of war to armour and honour a corps of soldiers who'd ignore him when he needed them most. Our king had no cause to boast of his fight family. He never saw them fight. God allotted him a blow. He forced his blade into the fray, braver than all of you together. I couldn't keep him safe defending his flank, but God gave me strength to swing and help him. At least I, alone among these ranks, tried. My sword sank in. The enemy was injured. The dragon's fire oaths dimmed. Her advances weaker. But I couldn't save him. Too few of you were loyal to our brave lord in time of trouble. Well, kiss it all goodbye, boys, those treasures you hoarded, those gifts, those sparkling, unswung swords, the homes you held by kindness of our king. That shit is gone. Your families will founder. Your freeholds will fall the moment outland princes hear how you hid yourselves, disgraced your king, and let him die undefended. Are you warriors or weaklings? Messengers spread the news, and soon everyone knows that Beowulf is dead, and without him, trouble will come for the Geats. The troop was weeping, but they rose and went in a woeful rose to Eagle's Cape, where, on the cold sand, they found their king, soul long spent, that man who'd given them everything he had, whose rings had warmed their hands. It was the end of his epic the climactic close, and Beowulf, their warrior king, died mighty. They saw beside him a wrathful wonder, a sky dragon become ground ghost. That flame-spitter, scourge of those coasts, had been scathed and sooted by her own song. She was fifty feet long, she who ruled in writhing rapture over their dreaming hours, diving through dawns to nest with her treasure. Now death had won her. The worm would no longer writhe with coins, but with worms. Beside her lay the dragon's dowry, grave-good goblets and cups, dishes and knives, rust devouring them now, though they'd spent a thousand winters serving the ghosts of powerful men. There was a spell on the hoard, left by a skeleton tribe, a ward that said no man could touch it, unless God, glory dispenser and hoarder of humanity, chose a hero and gave permission for the treasures to disperse. What had he hoped? 
the man who'd pressed his people's precious things into a cave beneath the cape. All his keeping came to nothing. First the dragon killed the king, then the king killed the dragon. Maybe a man's mighty, maybe he's known to all as a warrior, but death has his number. No one knows when it'll be called, when he'll have to walk backward out of the beer hall, exiled from life. So it was for Beowulf when he sought battle in a barrow. Sure, the grave guardian was formidable, but our hero had no notion he was falling out of earth. The curse on that stony womb was set by men who'd impregnated it with treasure, claiming the confines theirs until doomsday. If they couldn't possess them, no one could. Any man who thieved was fated to perish, pushed into pagan places, punished forever. Beowulf never imagined gold could bring grief. He forgot. Not all gifts are forgetting. The people take Beowulf and the hoard he'd won to the coast and make a pyre. They build a barrow for Beowulf's remains and bury him there with the rest of the hoard, lamenting. They did all this grieving the way men do, but bro, no man knows, not me, not you, how to get to goodbye. His guys tried. They remembered the right words. Our king. Lonely ring-wielder. Inheritor of everything. He was our man, but every man dies. Here he is now. Here our best boy lies. He rode hard. He stayed thirsty. He was the man. He was the man. I love this translation. I think it is absolutely fantastic. It's not a literal style translation, and it's not an archaic feeling translation either. So why do I love it so much? I love this translation because it's vibrant. It's fun. It's real. It pushes forward. It takes this epic, action-packed story and makes it feel action-packed, makes it drive forward, turns Beowulf into a boaster and a badass. And you look at this guy, the way he's depicted in the language here, and you can just see this proud young man filled with bravado. You can see how he has these rap battles with Unferth when Unferth insults him, how he boasts. It feels alive and present and current and real, and I love that. It doesn't feel like it's Old English, but I think maybe it feels a bit to us like the original Beowulf might have felt to some of the folks listening to it a thousand years ago. I didn't read you the whole thing. I read you excerpts. And that was partly because I only wanted to do one episode for this one. I didn't want to launch into a whole new season of reading it through. But it's partly because this translation was first published just last year. And I actually don't want you all to get a free audiobook from me. I want you to go and shower the author with acclaim by going to all of your libraries and saying, do you have a copy of Beowulf, a new translation by Maria Devana Heatley? It's worth a read. The whole thing is worth a read. It's so much fun. It's fun for me because even though it has this irreverence, it's actually 
twining that with Old English style. It's probably harder for you to tell because you're not looking at the page, so it seems more like prose. But some of the features of Old English poetry that we're actually seeing here, use of alliteration and repeated sounds, it was coming up constantly. Headley wasn't holding herself to the strict alliterative structure that gets used in Anglo-Saxon poetry, but you get lines like, Grendel was the name of this woe walker, right? You got that repetition there. Unlucky, fucked by fate. And so you've got the rhyme between unlucky and fucked. And then you've got the alliteration again between fucked and fate. And so all of that pulls together this really, really tight line that works the way that Old English poetry works, even though it doesn't feel like Old English poetry because it's got this swear word right in the middle that just shocks you. Another thing that is typical of Old English poetry is that it doesn't have the same structure of rhythmic patterns. So most of us who are used to sort of poetry from like the 14th century and after get used to the idea of things having a natural rhythm. Even by Chaucer, one that April with his showers soot, the draught of March hath pierced to the root, right? That's the beginning of the Canterbury Tales. And it's got this really consistent pattern of weak syllables and strong syllables. You can predict how that's going to go. In Old English poetry, it doesn't work like that. What you have is a certain number of strong syllables per line and usually a place where there's a pause in the middle. Now, Headley hasn't tried to keep that exact perfect number of strong syllables and the azures and things, but she has allowed the strength of those strong syllables to carry you forward. So again, I'm going to go to that line. Grendel was the name of this woe walker, unlucky, fucked by fate. The way that you get woe walker moves you forward, and then fucked by fate slows you down again. It's the sort of thing that you'll see in beat poetry today. It's got a very similar vibe, and this is true to Old English poetry. The other thing that's consistent with Old English poetry is that it's much less likely to have a natural pause at the end of the line. It's quite common for there to be an idea that moves through one line and into the next. And while that happens in the more rhythm-focused poetry you see sort of 14th century and onwards, it stands out more in that style than it does in this. There's also a whole lot of use of, of metaphors and things that really are very good translations of the original. So this piece actually pulls together some fantastic elements of Old English poetry while at the same time feeling very contemporary and rich. And, you know, the thing is that the use of, of slang and idiom in this translation is going to age and it's going to get dated and it's no longer going to feel vibrant and alive, but it doesn't have to last forever. Because one of the things that we see with translations is that texts can be reborn and reborn and reborn and we can continue to love them. That Beowulf is over a thousand years old and I can still tell you guys that story. And it's still awesome. If there's one thing that I hope I've been able to do with this podcast for the the podcast app we use says that there's probably about 30 regular listeners or so. We know there's been 
something in the vicinity of 4,300 plays of Lake across all of the episodes. Most episodes have been played about 50 times, except for the most recent ones. So let's say generously that there's about 40 of you listening. Thanks for listening, guys. If you weren't listening, we probably would have given up well before now. It's been fun, but knowing that people are listening makes a big difference. So, if there's one thing that I hope this podcast has been able to bring to you guys, it's an awareness that medieval literature is accessible. It can be real for us now. They are stories that we can explore now. And some of those stories we'll look at and we'll be like, that's fantastic, I love that. And some of those stories we'll look at and we'll say, what the fuck, Giovanni? Fuck off. As retellers, we can go forward and we can share these stories with other people and we can bring them to life. We can tell them, we can read them, we can edit them, we can make new things from them. These stories don't have to be sacred and old and untouchable. Don't treat them as precious jewels to be preserved in a case. Treat them as something alive. Have fun with medieval literature. That's why everyone tells stories. Or at least, that's why I do. Bitching About Beowulf is the final episode of Bitching About Medieval Literature. It is read by Gwen David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, everyone, and thanks for listening.